You may be seated. I've got a question for you. Have you ever thought about this? What, what topic did Jesus talk about more than any other topic? Now, maybe it was holy living or perhaps uh, money. He talked a lot about money. He talked about wealth and those things. Uh, or, or maybe it was uh, church order and how things could Uh, should be ordered in the church you know these are all possibilities but I think the thing that he talked about more than anything else if we examine all the words of Christ we'll see that more than anything else he spoke about his kingdom the kingdom of God this this kingdom of God is a central theme in Jesus teachings and and in his mission and and I fear that too often we we look to the king we long to know the king but we fail to consider the kingdom. And so today we'll be taking a look at what exactly we mean with the kingdom and what exactly we mean specifically when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. We're going to consider this and consider how the kingdom has an impact in the past, how it has an impact in the future, and how it has an impact in the present. But first of all, before we do that, let's ask God to guide us in our study of this idea. Our Heavenly Father, please do be with us now. Give us eyes to see your truth. Give us hearts that long to know you better and that submit to you, to your teaching, to your will. Speak through the word preached this morning, not because of the preacher, but because of your word. And because of Christ Jesus, who is the word made flesh, whose spirit dwells within those who are his, be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a a child, I was fascinated with Robin Hood. Uh, I don't know if any of you were fascinated with Robin Hood like I was. Frankly, I'm not even exactly sure why I was so fascinated with Robin Hood. I, I... Loved the color green as a kid. It was my favorite color. Maybe that had something to do with it. I don't know. But for some reason, I was captivated with the story of Robin Hood. And and if you'll recall, the context of Robin Hood is, is he's living in England in a time where King Richard the Lionhearted is off fighting in the Crusades. The rightful king, who is portrayed within the tales of Robin Hood as a good and righteous king. He is off, and in his place, his younger brother, John, is is reigning as he has gone, and and John is seen as somewhat of a usurper of King Richard's powers. He's not so much just keeping the throne warm for him. He's not just carrying out Richard's ideas while Richard is gone, but he is rather kind of weaseling his way in and taking control and trying to usurp this royal authority. All the while, Robin Hood and his merry men are awaiting the return of the rightful king. They're waiting for him to return and set all things in his kingdom to rights. When Richard returns, it would truly be his kingdom in which Robin Hood and his merry men would live. In the Lord's Prayer, we express a similar 
longing, a similar desire when we pray, thy kingdom come. Now I want to just point out a couple quick things just to kind of get them out of the way. First of all, we need to remember that as we pray, uh, as we pray for thy kingdom to come, that, that Jesus is already king. It's, it's much the same as when we prayed, hallowed be thy name. We were, we were praying for his holiness to be made evident. We weren't praying for God to become holy. We weren't praying for him to become something he is not. Jesus is already king. And so as we pray, thy kingdom come, we're praying for something to be made manifest here in earth that is already true. Secondly, we, we want to remember what we said a couple weeks ago when, when we spoke of the phrase, on earth as it is in heaven, in the prayer, how it, it follows, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But it's not just affixed to that, it's affixed to all three of the petitions that precede it. Hallowed be thy name on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we consider now how, how the prayer, how the petition, thy kingdom come, how it has an impact in the past. We need to realize that the Jews in Jesus' day had, had a longing for a kingdom to be established. They lived in the context of, of a country that was occupied. Uh, you think of perhaps France during World War II when, when they were occupied by the Nazis. And so the people of France lived in, in a country that was their own, but it was not their own. Uh, they were under an, an occupation by a foreign force. And so it was with the nation of Israel at the time of Jesus, occupied by Rome. And under their authority. And, and there was a longing amongst the Jewish people to be delivered from this. And so when they sought the kingdom of God, what they were seeking was really a, a geopolitical kingdom. That they would be delivered from Roman occupation. And it's against this backdrop that, that the Pharisees came to Jesus in Luke 17 and, and asked him, because he did talk so much about the kingdom of God, they, they asked him when the kingdom of God would come, and he answered them. He said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. You see what he was saying to them? The, the kingdom of God isn't coming with some big sign. You'll see the kingdom is already here. Why did he say that? He said that because he was the king. And where the king is, there is the kingdom. Jesus had arrived and, and with his arrival he brought the inauguration of his kingdom. And so he said to the Pharisees, it is right here. You can't see it because your eyes are blind to truth. But the kingdom is in your midst. Now wait a second, Pete, you might say. Wait, if, if the kingdom has already come, then why are we praying, thy kingdom come? It's a good question. There, there's a, a, a very inelegant uh, theological term that is, that is often used for things such as this. It's called the 
the concept of the already not yet, uh, which is actually what they, you'd think they'd have like some big Latin phrase or something for that. But in seminary, they didn't teach us any Latin phrases. They just called it that, the, the already not yet aspect of the kingdom. And you see, the idea is that the kingdom has already been inaugurated. The kingdom is, is already present. Jesus is reigning right now. But though that is true, it is yet to be realized in all of its fullness, in all of its glory, in all of its truth. And so while Jesus is already king and in a sense the kingdom is in the midst of us, there is a sense in which it is still yet to come in greater fullness. To help us see this truth, it's good to understand kind of the, the redemptive historical arc of scriptures, of, of the story of the gospel. You see, God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. He created all things. And he said, it is good. It is, it is good. It is good. Ultimately, upon his finalization of the creation, the creation of man, he says, it is very good. This perfect creation of God, wherein there was no sin, Genesis 1 and 2, that picture of perfection, the Garden of Eden, that realization of what life in the kingdom ultimately will be. But, alas, You don't need me to tell you that that is not the world in which we live today. For our days are filled with pain and suffering, difficulties and sorrow, and tears and death. What happened? How did we get from there to here? Well, what the Bible tells us in Genesis 3 is that Adam, who was acting as our representative, as our our federal head, we call it, he sinned and fell from the perfect fellowship that he had with God at that time. Not only did he fall, but all of his descendants, every person who would ever walk the face of the earth, and not just his descendants, but the creation itself, for he was a vice regent in charge of the creation, overseeing it on behalf of God. And so all of creation fell, and that is why we live in a world today that is so fraught with peril, with terror, and with death. Now, it would have been completely within God's rights at that point to say, he ruined it. Never mind, I'll just go and take my ball and play by myself. But that's not what God did. In in all of his grace and his kindness and his mercy and his glory, he made a way for things to be set to rights. And so Jesus Christ, the Son of God, eternally the second person of the Holy Trinity, took on human flesh. He became a man. Actually, even before that, he became a baby. Isn't it incredible? <clears throat> I was sharing with some other people just today. It's, 
It's in Luke 2, right after the, the Christmas uh, nativity story. It moves on to when Jesus was a young boy, and, and they went to the, the temple, and then they returned home, and they lost Jesus and had to go back and get him. Perhaps you're familiar with the story. But, but what it says at the end of Luke 2, after, after they went back and found him, and he says, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? And then it says that they, they went back down to Nazareth, and he was submissive to them. Just consider that for a moment. The king of all creation, the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe, was submissive to his parents, his human parents, his creatures that he had created. What humility, what, what grace, what what an act of condescension, condescension on Jesus' part to, to place himself under such authority. What a gift it is to us. And so he did that, that he might live a holy life, fulfilling all righteousness on our behalf, and die the death that we deserved on Calvary's cross. And that's why he died. He didn't die just to give us an example of of sacrifice, he didn't die just to, to uh, just because he didn't know what was going to happen, and that's where it ended up, uh, or or some other reason. He died to pay for the sins of his people, and he accomplished atonement for their sins. He accomplished the satisfaction of absorbing the righteous, holy wrath of God, and in so doing, we are saved. And so we have redemption. So we see this picture of creation and then fall and then redemption. But not everything is made right yet. Not everything is made right yet. It's certainly wonderful that we're saved, but we still live in a fallen world. Yet Jesus is coming back one day. We read about it in Revelation 21 together. He is returning and he will set all things to right. We will see a consummation. And that's, that's how we see the, the future impact here of the kingdom. It is in the consummation of the plan of God, the work of God through Christ Jesus. D.A. Carson put it this way. He says, to pray thy kingdom come is to pray that God's saving reign will be expanded even now and much more that God will usher in the consummated kingdom. See, what a wonderful day that will be. You might read in some fiction novels, something about some idea of a, a secret rapture or something like that, that Jesus will come and nobody will realize that that's happened. But, but that's not the picture the Bible gives us. The Bible gives us a picture of Christ coming in all glory, the trumpet sounding and, and every eye beholding his return. And when, when he comes, we will know it and it will usher in his kingdom in all its consummation, in all its beauty, in all its holiness, in all its glory. Though it will come like a thief in the night, that is, we will not know it is coming, we will not see it coming, we can't say it's going to be next Tuesday, I'm sure, because the stars are here and the moon is there, and if you read the Bible backwards and in the mirror and twist it around three times and do a somersault, it says, no, we don't know when it was, when it's going to come. Jesus himself said he didn't know when he was going to come. Only the Father in heaven. 
But when he comes, we will notice. And it will be wonderful. So there's an impact in the past. There's an impact in the future. But most important for us today, really, is the impact in the present. How does this impact our lives today? Well, if we truly desire the kingdom to come, if that really is our heart's prayer, if we long for a world where all things have been set to rights, surely we will examine what that would look like. We will try to increase our understanding of of what that would be. And we will live our lives today faithfully to that end, that it might might mirror that. We would say, what does it look like to walk in all holiness? What does it look like to, to live in this consummated kingdom? And what can I do so that my world today looks like that? We will heed Paul's exhortation in Romans 12, where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We will long to know what it is to be part of the kingdom of God. It's really a multifaceted thing, much as a diamond has many facets and its its beauty is is diverse and rich. So it is with the kingdom of God. It, It is on the one hand, literally heaven come to earth, as we read in Revelation 21. We, we pray for the coming of the new heavens and the new earth, that there will be this reality in our midst, that Christ will return. This is our longing. We, we do not fear the end of the world, because the end of the world is, is a good thing, because with the end of the world comes the beginning of a new world that Christ ushers in. Secondly, we, we understand the kingdom of God as being marked by people trusting in Christ Jesus, that there is, there is an aspect where, where, yes, heaven come to earth in history is a real, real part of the kingdom, but there is a sense in which the kingdom impacts hearts of people, so it's an internal thing. People turning to Christ Jesus, trusting in Christ Jesus, realizing that we cannot save ourselves, but he is the way and the truth and the life The one way by which we might come to the Father is through him. And so as as individuals receive this truth into their heart and they realize, yes, I I cannot save myself. I I do need to be saved, but I, I, I am lost on my own. I need to trust in Christ Jesus. I will trust in Christ Jesus and and I will I will follow him. And this is a sense of which the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming into our midst when people turn to Christ Jesus for salvation. It's a very real sense. Another way in which the kingdom comes is through people living like Christ Jesus. Jesus is not just a great moral example, but he is a great moral example. You see, he's far more than that, but he is not less than that. Jesus fulfilled all holiness and so we should live like him we should do the things he says and we should do the things he does it's interesting how you look at kind of the 
within theological circles, the, the conservative end of the church tends to emphasize the, the part of people turning to Jesus, receiving him as their savior, trusting in him for salvation. And that's kind of the important aspect. And the, the liberal end of the church tends to emphasize the part of following Jesus morally and, and, and doing, doing certain things, being, being nice to people and, and trying to love people. And, and the reality is we need to do both of them, don't we? We need to hold on to both of those poles. We need to speak the truth. Yes, we need to love. Yes, but we need to speak the truth in love. We need to do them both. We need to, we need to hold on to both of those. I, I heard one pastor put it this way. He said, those who believe in Christ most conservatively ought to love others most liberally. See, the idea is that, that a conservative understanding of scriptures, trusting in Christ will lead to us loving others because that's what Christ has called us to do. He has called us to love and so we should not be stingy with our love. I saw a a cartoon just the other day and it was of Jesus talking to to his followers and and he said, "I, I tell you, you are to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then in the next panel, it had one of the people in the crowd say, yeah, Jesus, but what about if they're Muslims? And then the next panel, Jesus says, let me start over. You are to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's it. You see, so often we're quick to do that, aren't we? We are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you, but I can't love this enemy. I can't pray for this person. I can't really be expected to do that. Well, why not? That's exactly what Jesus has done for us. You see, we were his enemies, and the only reason we have salvation is because he did love his enemies, and he continues to pray for us even today. And so if he has saved us, Ought we not to do what he has called us to do? And that's what the church is supposed to be. It is supposed to hold on to truth tenaciously, not slipping, not saying, oh, you guys can do whatever you want to do. It doesn't really matter. Do what? No, hold on to truth. Do what Jesus says, but at the same time, love others with the love of Christ. And in so doing, the church becomes a picture of the kingdom come. You see, that's why Timothy Dwight wrote, and we sang just a a minute ago, I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode, the church our blessed redeemer saved with his own precious blood. I love thy church, O God, her walls before thee stand, dear as the apple of thine eye, and written on thy hand. You see, he has a picture of the church being a picture of the the kingdom of God. We are to be the the kind of advanced picture. You you ever watch uh, a, a trailer for a movie? Right, where the, you watch the trailer and it kind of shows you some of the things about the movie. Sometimes, you know, on, on some movies they kind of show you the whole movie, and that's kind of a bummer. But, but you know, they, they'll show you the movie and it's supposed to pique your interest, it's supposed to attract you, it's supposed to say, oh, this, this looks like something that, that I'd like to see. I'd like to go see this movie. That's really neat. That, that's kind of how the church is for the kingdom. We are, we are the trailer for the kingdom of God. People are to look at the church and they're to say, oh, oh, that's what the kingdom of God is like. Wow. 
I want to be a part of that. I, I, I think that's attractive. I think I'll go spend my $10 and buy a $13 popcorn and go to that. And we hope for that reason that the church will grow. We want the church to grow, not so that we can say, ha, we're part of the biggest group. No. But we do want it to grow in breadth. We want it to grow in numbers so that people are not just coming to church, being a part of the church, but, but actually being the church and, and loving others and following Jesus and walking in righteousness and most of all, turning their lives over to him as Savior and Lord. Both aspects. And we want to grow in depth, not just, not just breadth in numbers, but depth, depth of understanding. So that we walk in truth, that we grow in knowledge, that we see who Jesus is. And thus love him more and are more faithful to him. You see, too often I think we're, we're concerned about the kingdom being manifest in this order. First, in the world around us, then in the lives of like, the church, and then finally we kind of consider it as it impacts myself. It, it's completely backwards. You see, it, it should be the other way around. When I pray thy kingdom come, the first aspect of my prayer should be as it affects myself. To pray thy kingdom come is to say, Father, overcome me, defeat me, Break me down, conquer me, change me, rule me, make me your own. Break me so that you might fix me. Much as a surgeon might have to break a bone in order to reset it. You know, it's extremely painful, it's really hard, it's not fun at all, but it's necessary. And so my prayer should be, God, break me and then set me. Make me as you would have me be. And then, then secondarily, when I pray thy kingdom come, I'm praying for the church. I'm praying for, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for others in the church. Not just our church, but the church as a whole. Other, I, I pray for the church at large, for our church at large, and then for the individuals that make up the church. We pray that, that God would rule us, that we as a group would take every thought captive to obey Christ, that we would more faithfully represent Christ in our communities and in the world. We want to see the purity of Christ made manifest in the church. We want to see the love of Christ made manifest in the church. And then after, after we've had our mind go through the thoughts of, of praying, thy kingdom come in my life, and after we've had our thoughts go through the, thy kingdom come in the lives of the church, then... After that, we, we say, thy kingdom come in the world around us. You know, we spend a lot of time worrying about morality in our world, in our culture, and it's understandable because, frankly, the morality and ethics of our world are, are, are completely lost. They're terrible. But, but if we stop and think about it, why would we expect them to be anything but? If, if we believe as we do that people who are without Christ are lost in their sins, and dead to God, and, and they have no life in them, how would we expect them to walk in holiness? The critique often is of Christians. Oh, they just think they're better than everybody else. No, we're not better. I'm no better than the worst of sinners. I'm just forgiven. 
have the blood of Christ poured out on me. And, and through that blood, through that forgiveness, I have new life. I have new eyes, new ears, a new heart. So I can live a new life that Christ has given me. And because I'm forgiven by Christ, I want to live for him. We probably need to spend less time worrying about the morals of the world and more, more time worrying about ourselves and the church. Jesus' harshest criticisms, you'll recall, were always reserved for the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious insiders, the people who were, were self-righteous rules followers. But meanwhile, we here today, we, we don't live in a context where everybody is part of the church. And we live in, in exile Essentially, we live in a, a foreign land. We shouldn't expect this land, this world, this culture to re- reflect the kingdom of God. Creation has fallen, is on the, under the power of another. We, we, we live waiting while there's a usurper on the throne, in a sense. You see, we, we're waiting and longing in anticipation of that day where the king will return. We, we wait under the usurped reign of one who would create sin and chaos, who would create turmoil, who Ephesians 2 verse 2 calls the prince of the power of the air. 1 John 5 verse 19 tells us that the whole world lies in, pow- in the power of the evil one terrible place to be but I remind you of this his power though great is limited and lo his doom is sure God doesn't give us all the answers to the the whens and the whys he doesn't tell us why exactly we have to endure certain trials certain tribulations he doesn't tell us why A loved one of ours needs to suffer. He doesn't tell us specifically why he needed to take from us a friend, a child or a grandchild, a spouse, or some other loved one. But he does answer the question that most matters. Satan's reign is temporary, and Christ Jesus will return one day to usher in his kingdom in all its consummation, and to set all things to rights. Your greatest heartache, your greatest sorrow, your most plentiful tears will be made right in that day that Jesus returns. And so we pray, thy kingdom come. In closing, I just want to say this. Uh, we mentioned earlier the, the tetrad of blood moons and how some people are all fearful about this because the end of the world might be coming. Well, the end of the world is coming. Newsflash. It's an hour closer now than it was an hour ago. The Christian response is not to be fearful. It is not to be worried First, because we don't buy into foolish man-made schemes of how to calculate things that are incalculable. 
But secondly, and more importantly, even if we did have an assurance that said today is the day, then we would not be fearful, but we would be hopeful. We would be excited for the end of this world means the ushering in of Christ's kingdom. And nothing could be better than that. And that is why we pray, thy kingdom come. For when we pray that prayer, we pray, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, so govern us by your word and spirit that we may submit ourselves to you always more and more. Preserve and increase your church. Destroy the works of the devil. Every power that exalts itself against you and all wicked devices formed against your holy word until the fullness of your kingdom come, wherein you shall be all in all. So these next couple days, when you hear reports about blood moons, let your response be, thy kingdom come. It's our desire. It's it's our prayer. It's our future reality. For as the great hymnist Isaac Watts once penned, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive courses run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. Even so, Lord Jesus, thy kingdom come. Let's pray. Our Lord, we do pray, thy kingdom come. May it be the case that even, even this day, our hearts might more and more long for your return. And may it be the case that as we see you tarry, our lives might be more and more conformed to your likeness, that we might more and more within ourselves and within the church live as though your kingdom has already come in all of its manifestation and in all of its glory. May we do this by the power of him who dwells in us through his spirit, even Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please rise with me now and sing.